Hi guys. This is a special series that will span several episodes about one of North America's most notoriously haunted locations, the Blue Ghost Tunnel. If you search online, you will find an enormous amount of information about the tunnel and various YouTube videos documenting ghost hunts. This series will provide accurate information, historic research, and personal accounts dating back to the 1950s. This is Unsolved Mysteries of the World, Season 2, Episode 13, The Making of a Legend, The Blue Ghost Tunnel. In 2005, Skeptics Canada sent the small crew to the Blue Ghost Tunnel to debunk any paranormal activity that had been witnessed or experienced by the thousands of visitors. The Blue Ghost Tunnel was a hot topic in persons visiting guaranteed activity. In the report, they claimed to demonstrate natural explanations for the many orb and mist photos, and I agree with their findings. These types of photographs are common at the Blue Ghost Tunnel and are not paranormal in nature. Skeptics Canada also dismissed the EVPs captured in the tunnel as the natural sounds of water dripping into the pools below. However, Skeptics Canada did not send a team in to investigate during the winter when the tunnel is deathly quiet and there are no water drops disrupting or interfering with any recording. In 2010, paranormal enthusiast Dave Wilson, who had previously documented his visits to the tunnel on his webpage, posted that he accidentally stumbled upon another tunnel near the Blue Ghost Tunnel. Those interested in the history and the paranormal aspect of the area quickly dismissed the contention that this new tunnel, dubbed the Lost Tunnel, was anywhere near the Blue Ghost Tunnel. In fact, this new tunnel is real but it's in Ancaster, Ontario, and it is called the Tiffany Tunnel. However, Dave entertained those who were gullible enough to believe that seemingly a decade after Russ's discovery of the Blue Ghost Tunnel, another haunted tunnel was discovered just steps from the original. For those looking for additional information on the Blue Ghost Tunnel and area, this new myth clouds their research and gives those who mock the paranormal community additional fodder. That same year, Niagara area resident Linda Randall, who began blogging about everything from new French fashion designs to Justin Bieber, found a topic she was attracted to. As a self-proclaimed psychic investigator, she began to visit the Blue Ghost Tunnel and surrounding area. Linda claimed to have discovered human remains at the Lakeview Cemetery but was quickly dismissed after it was discovered she had only found the bones of an animal. She visited the tunnel and area frequently and blogged about her experiences, coming to the conclusion, allegedly through psychic encounters, that the tunnel is in fact haunted and that she had discovered its source. According to Linda, the tunnel is haunted by a protective spirit who wishes to warn people about the dangers of the tunnel and the canal. The spirit is said to be that of George Kiefer, a Thorold resident who owned and operated local mills and had a large interest in the development of the earlier canals. Others are less convinced that George Kiefer would be hanging out as a spirit in an abandoned tunnel he was not connected with, warning teenagers of danger. 
I personally first heard of the tunnel through a friend of a friend. Isn't that how urban legends go? And I was told that it was haunted and a great place to check out. In the 1990s, I was mildly interested in the paranormal and began chatting on bulletin board systems about local haunts and experiences. And one user indicated that they know of another tunnel, and unlike the popular screaming tunnel in the area, this one was really haunted. A few high school friends had heard of the tunnel as well, and together we made plans to meet others from Thorold High at the entrance of the tunnel. We decided to make a trip down to the tunnel using a flock of beaten down BMX bikes. The initial idea was to visit the tunnel and to experience whatever ghost was there, but it quickly turned into a get-together as plans were devised to bring a case of beer. We were hoping that perhaps with this new component, a few girls might be enticed to make the journey as well. We managed to make it to the tunnel and found that the get-together was actually a convention of losers with a six-pack and two girls between a dozen boys. We dropped our bikes and proceeded to look over the dark mouth of the tunnel. It had an eerie feeling to it. We were all apprehensive about going in. We shared stories about the tunnel, but I only remember one of the half dozen that floated around, each ending with one of us declaring it bullshit. The story went that a little girl was kidnapped by her deranged family friend and brought into the woods near the tunnel. Finding no way to cross from Thorold to a less populated area across the canal, where he planned to sexually assault the girl, the man entered the train tunnel. The girl broke free when she was near the back end of the tunnel, and the man quickly caught up to her and strangled her to death to stifle her screams. Frantic, he took her body and buried it into the East End woods, and it was said that he escaped to the United States and was never heard from again. Upon hearing the conclusion of the tale, one of us said it was bullshit and mustered enough courage to enter the tunnel. The rest of us followed... And the only one of us smart enough to think of bringing a flashlight was assigned to take up point. At that time, the tunnel did not have any support beams nor much groundwork, and we quickly came to a halt, stopped by standing water that appeared to go the length of the tunnel. We stood there for several moments and continued to talk about ghosts and ghost stories. One of us spoke of some teens that drowned near the tunnel in the canal some years ago, And that tale, which seemed to be based in fact, scared us back out of the tunnel. That was my first visit to the tunnel. The beer having been quickly consumed and curfews overrun, we decided to ride back home. Aside from eerie feelings and being spooked from the tales we told, there was no encounter, no ghostly presence, and no evidence that would suggest that the tunnel was anything more than a damp, dark hole under the Welland Canal not worthy of another scouting trip, even with more beer and more willing female participants. Years later, as my interest in the paranormal grew, the tunnel came up again as a definite hot spot for paranormal activity. Together with a college friend, I explored the tunnel and the surrounding area. My friend brought a tape recorder that we used in class to record lectures and we hope to capture electronic voice phenomenon, the EVPs, or in other terms, ghostly voices caught on tape. On this visit, I noticed a well-constructed fire pit had been built and several empty bottles of beer were lying near. It had become a popular spot for local teens to escape reality, share a beer, and wonder about the unknown with the tunnel as the backdrop. 
The tunnel had changed. Support beams were in place and railway ties were placed along the, the floor. To the left, a drainage ditch was constructed to allow the flow of water to continue and exit the tunnel. We recorded about an hour worth of tape from the tunnel using a micro cassette recorder and we took several photos. None of the photos produced any anomalies and the sound we recorded produced only what we would consider the natural sounds of the tunnel. The tunnel had been damaged by the constant water flow since my first visit and water was slowly dripping down, echoing like footsteps and knocks, producing an eerie sound. A year or so later, I visited again with members of a bulletin board system. We descended the trail with the assistance of a General Motors employee who helped us relocate the tunnel, which for some reason we were not able to find, even though two of our group had been there previously. The GM employees joked about the tunnel's ghost and generally tried to scare us for their own amusement. They indicated the ghost was a man that was killed in a train wreck and that we should be very careful. Thanking them for the directions and cursing them under our breath, we proceeded to the tunnel entrance, where one of our group members started feeling ill. The sickness feeling did not pass, so we decided to leave him at the entrance while the rest of us ventured inside. Again, photos and audio were recorded, and a videotape was also documenting the experience. This time we heard an audible scream and whispers. We also heard footsteps running down the length of the tunnel. We remained there trying to get further evidence and trying to validate the sounds we perceived for several hours. However, nothing noteworthy occurred after the first 15 minutes. It seemed we did hear what we concluded was paranormal. However, our audio equipment only recorded the sounds of the footsteps. Later, one of our group determined the sound must have come from the water dripping, but some of us were not entirely convinced of this theory. For several years after, I heard about the tunnel and the ghostly goings-on, but each time the tale was different. It had become an alternative spot for teens to gather, to share experiences, and enjoy being apart from the world around them. The tunnel provided solace, and for several years it remained nothing more than that, a place to hang out. In early 2001, I read about a paranormal group who had encounters with the Screaming Tunnel, but their description and location of the tunnel did not match the one on Warner Road in Niagara Falls, Ontario. At the time, I believed the poster was either incompetent or simply making up another story about the Screaming Tunnel. I didn't realize that this poster was talking about the tunnel behind General Motors, the one we now know as the Blue Ghost Tunnel. However, the message thread caught the attention of a young paranormal enthusiast from Welland, Ontario, known online as Russ. He had already visited several haunted locations in the Niagara region and was interested in learning more about the tunnel and visiting it for himself. After several visits, Russ quickly defined his entire online persona by declaring the discovery of the tunnel, which he dubbed the Blue Ghost Tunnel. His webpage quickly became devoted to the tunnel, and he began writing about his experiences in an online journal, which he said would lead him to a book deal documenting the counters with an entity known as September. I followed the online journal and then found out that Russ had taken the website down and abandoned all his work and interest in the paranormal. According to online rumors, he'd been so scared about his last encounter at the tunnel that he ran off to Florida to escape its evil grip. 
Whether or not the rumor was true, Russ disappeared both online and offline. At the time I was working on Shadows of Niagara, investigating Canada's most haunted region, it was a book that chronicled and documented firsthand all of the haunted locations in the Niagara region. At first, I didn't even include the Blue Ghost Tunnel, but as internet chatter picked up about the tunnel and others such as Hamilton Paranormal and amateur spirit seekers visited the tunnel, gathering evidence to suggest the tunnel was haunted, I proceeded to make plans to revisit the tunnel with a few psychic mediums and a host of equipment. Perhaps my previous visits had missed something extraordinary. During the work on Shadows of Niagara, several visits to the tunnel were made and recorded. One of the investigations included over a dozen eyewitnesses and produced some interesting results, including an audible scream so loud that all in our group heard it. Our EVP recorder picked it up and three video cameras picked it up. The audio was subjected to analysis and it was determined that the scream heard was indeed real. All of the visits to the tunnel produced some results and I was convinced that the tunnel was indeed haunted. But there was a lot more work to be done in order to find out by whom and why. In the early 1950s, several residents of Thorold and the surrounding area discovered that hiking along the Old Welland Canal was adventurous and exciting. This was especially true for the children, who made the land a playground as there was so much to explore. The Old Welland Canal, natural limestone caves, a nearby abandoned cemetery, historical houses and foundations, and of course, a creepy tunnel. The Blue Ghost Tunnel sat undisturbed, save for a chance meeting with a hiker or a group of children daring each other to enter. Several Thorold residents have come forward to say that they had played in or near the tunnel as early as the 1950s. Recounting their memories, only one person believed they had heard that the tunnel was actually haunted. Others simply knew it as an abandoned railway tunnel that was mostly flooded with water and pretty much uninteresting although they admit it had a creepy feeling to it. The one person who had been told it was haunted could not recount by what or by what means it was considered haunted. It was trivial to the children at the time because there were other locations within sight that were considered truly haunted. These included the abandoned quarry mansion on the hill, the Lakeview Cemetery, and the Bishop Fuller House. I had a talk with my sister and father while going over some of the photos, says Ed Pendikoski. My dad, who's now 85, doesn't recall a ghost, but he did refer to an ice angel. This would be from the ice in the winter. Even in the 1950s, there was ice in the tunnel. From his description, there was more to see at that time of the foundation and land of the farmhouses. The tunnel still had a rail bed, no tracks though, and on the inside, you could still see the small wooden posts on the wall at the top with some glass knobs that held wires. He did tell us of a ghost, but that was in the big house on top of the hill above the quarry. I don't recall the GTR tunnel being haunted until about 1970, recalls Mr. Pinnikowski. He also mentions that he did not see or hear a ghost on his many adventures to and around the tunnel but he had a strange feeling about the tunnel itself. Another man, Gerald Steck, remembered being in a group of teens visiting the tunnel in the 1970s 
when they decided to enter the tunnel and slosh through the nearly foot of water in an attempt to see where the tunnel actually led. He said they made it in about quarter of the way before they felt very uneasy. He says, It was like a wall of darkness had been put up around us. Suddenly, it got very, very cold, and I was the first to see it. It was a woman in a black dress with a black hat. We all screamed and started running for the entrance. I remember I dropped my torch and it went out, presumably broken, or the batteries came loose, making the tunnel even more dark. As we got out, we slipped in the mud and made a mess of our clothes. Our mother scolded us later about the mess, but we told them what had happened. One of my friends mother said that they had heard about the tunnel and knew a group from New York State that would come and take a look. The children found out that two psychics had visited the tunnel and the canal area in the fall of 1976 and were told that they had encountered something special. The family went down there with these two women from the U.S. They were psychic and said that they were interested in things like this. Well, I was told that things got strange and that the psychics found out that a widow had been looking for her lost son when she stumbled and fell into the canal. Unable to swim, she drowned, and to this day, I guess, she is still looking for her son. Now her parents had told us never to go near the canal or the tunnel, but after hearing all this, they didn't need to tell us again. I tried to contact the psychics who were supposed to have visited the tunnel and encountered the spirit of a widow, but I wasn't able to do so, nor was I able to find the family that had originally contacted the psychics. The psychic's hometown of Lilydale, New York, is a psychic commune of sorts, and they say they do not know who it may have been or that the story of the widow looking for her lost son might have simply been a fanciful narrative to keep the young boys away from the dangers of the canal and the tunnel itself. In my research, an unlikely witness came forward with yet another narrative to describe the source of the paranormal activity at the tunnel. Due to his past relationships and his activity with a local biker gang, this witness wishes to remain anonymous. He says, I can't remember the exact date or even the year, to tell you the truth, but I remember what happened. And I can also tell you that the tunnel is haunted. I know that for a fact. In the early 1970s, the land back there was mostly private, and there was no golf course or off-roaders. Growing up in the area, we knew the tunnel, and we heard that it was haunted. But a lot of us didn't believe in shit like that, or pretended we didn't. There were pretty big caves out that way as well, and we all said it would be perfect for a place to hide stolen loot, or even hide out if we had to. We didn't spend much time there, but we did occasionally visit the tunnel. We called it the Screaming Tunnels, because there were other tunnels in the area, and they were all connected, even to the small one in Niagara Falls. I don't know who told me, but the rumor was that a little girl was raped and murdered in that tunnel, and you could hear the screams if you listened closely. It was like a record player being played over and over and over again throughout time. I heard the screams for myself, and I also saw the little girl's ghost, but I'll get back to that a little later on. Many of my friends worked at the factories in Thorold and St. Catharines, and some worked at the GM plant as well. You could get to the tunnel two ways, a short way through GM property or the long way through the cemetery from the falls. 
When new recruits were brought on board, sometimes we would fuck with them and see how tough they really were. We told them the stories of the tunnel, and then we drove them through the cemetery down a road toward the tunnel alongside the canal. When they reached the tunnel, they had to go inside with their bike and stay there for a night. If they made it, we knew they weren't chicken shit. We used the tunnel a few times as well just to meet up or hang out because it was so secluded. Sometimes we would send people in on foot. There was about a half foot of water near the middle of the tunnel and it leaked a lot. But here's another thing that happened down there. Once, one of the members brought a prostitute down from the strip and she was involved with some drugs being stolen or something like that. Anyhow, the guy that brought her down roughed her up pretty bad. A few of the other guys had their way with her as well, even after they nearly drowned her. From what I heard, they let her go and she ran out the other end of the tunnel. I've also heard later that they killed her down there and buried the body, but I wouldn't know since I was never there and this was told to me a few years after the fact. Now here is the screwed up thing. The rumor is that in the early days a girl was raped and murdered in the tunnel, and that is who was haunting it. I've heard the scream and I've seen her ghost. I've also seen a man ghost down there, a big shit with a dark coat, hat, and beard. He looked like a Mennonite. A few years back I heard that people were going down there to have a look at the tunnel to see the ghosts. I can tell you that I've been there a few times and never felt good about the place. The girl didn't scare me. It kind of makes me sad in a way, but the guy I saw in the dark coat scared the shit out of me. He was smiling like a crazy person would, like a perfect psychopath. I figured he was the one that raped the girl. It was a weird feeling I got just looking at him. He wasn't like a ghost, you know, like see-through. He was like real life. But then he disappeared after a few seconds. He's keeping the ghosts down there. I haven't been back and I don't think I would ever go down there. Some things should just be left alone. Other witnesses have come forward with the same suggestion that the tunnel was used by local biker gangs as a hangout. The remoteness of the tunnel would surely be advantageous, but the rough condition of the roads would be a deterrent for someone riding a Harley Davidson. The local biker gangs have all since faded or amalgamated with the Hells Angels. There have been no reports in recent years of the tunnel being accessed by any biker gangs. Police records show no investigations at the tunnel throughout its history, except for the recent trespassing and activity started shortly after the show Creepy Canada and tour operators Haunted Hamilton showcased the tunnel on television. Newspaper and local media also do not provide any reports of any murder, rape, or any other criminal activity at or near the tunnel, neither at the turn of the century or any other time. For years, internet rumors circulated about an abandoned cemetery that once had been exactly above where the Blue Ghost Tunnel now resides. Eyewitnesses claim to have seen coffins floating in the water deep inside the tunnel as well as protruding through the limestone roof. Witnesses could not, however, provide photographic evidence, and the eyewitness accounts were either ridiculed or dismissed as people mistakenly seeing things in the dark. To this day, there are still internet rumors about an abandoned cemetery above or very near the tunnel that is the route to the paranormal activity inside the tunnel, and this rumor is partially true. There was, and still is, a burial ground in the area of the Blue Ghost Tunnel. 
but to say it's near the tunnel is a matter of interpretation. It would also be a stretch to believe that a cemetery some distance from the tunnel could be the source of its paranormal encounters. In the early years throughout the township of Thorold, there were numerous cemetery sites, including several family-operated grounds. In the early 1880s, a proper cemetery was established alongside a structure commonly known as the Old German Church. The log church was erected in 1773 on the crossroads of the former Ten Mile Creek Road and St. David's Road. In 1775, the first burial occurred on the property. Thorold resident Jacob Ball deeded additional land to the church in 1802 so that the church could bury its dead adjacent to the churchyard. Jacob Ball deeded five acres, and the transaction was approved by the United Empire Loyalists who governed the local community. In 1829, plans were drawn up to erect a more functional and impressive church made of nearby limestone, and by 1832, a new church with the new name, St. Peter's, had been built across the street from the decrepit log structure, which had in the meantime been transformed from a church into a feed stable. In 1836, George Kiefer, church warden and burial grounds trustee, motioned for the community to build a new church closer to the vibrant downtown of Thorold. As these plans were set into motion, the congregation slowly abandoned St. Peter's, save for special occasions and funeral arrangements. In 1862, St. Peter's was replaced by St. John the Evangelist in Thorold, and by the end of that decade, St. Peter's had become an empty shell with its cemetery filled to capacity. In 1875, the Thorold Post published an article about the poor conditions of the cemetery grounds. The author wished to have the city regarded favorably by visitors and called the state of the cemetery, quote, a crying evil and a disgrace to humanity. The Welland Canal was considered an engineering marvel in its day and was often visited by astonished tourists. Noting this, the Thorold Post writer asked rhetorically, if a stranger came to see the new canal, what would they think by coming across such a site? I am sure they would have a low opinion of the region. The article did little to entice the city to act. The cemetery remained in a state of neglect, and the lack of care caused the yard, the headstones, and the fence to fall farther into disrepair. In 1876, another article was published in the Thorold Post with the headline, Oh, why is it so? The article asked why the city had abandoned the care of the cemetery, allowing cattle to roam inside the church and in the cemetery proper, causing damage to headstones and property. In chastising the local authorities, the author concluded, Why, oh why is it so? The new article gained much more attention as residents felt it ungodly to have cattle defecating on the graves of their forefathers and in August of 1876, one month after the article's publication, a plan to have the cattle expelled and the fence repaired at St. Peter's was brought forward by the town council. In addition, a motion to commission a new burial site was also approved. St. Peter's fence was repaired, and some of the monuments were re-established after being knocked over by the Roman cattle. By 1886, a new cemetery was developed on the escarpment, far from the developments of the Welland Canal. With the new cemetery, St. Peter's and the old cemetery were forced once again to be forgotten. 
1903, another article about the old cemetery appeared in the Thorold Post. The author described his visit by saying it was like walking through a jungle with overgrown brush and neglected grave markers that propped up through the brush. Some of the stones were broken and the fence that surrounds the graveyard was broken in many areas. No one took much concern or notice about this new article. In 1921, the cemetery was once again in the news, but this time the topic of conversation was its demise. A new canal, one that would be able to transport larger vessels, was needed, and the land on which St. Peter's Church was on, as well as the cemetery, would be used in the construction of a large pondage area. The Thorold Post ran a notice asking relatives of those interned at the old cemetery to have the bodies exhumed and reinterned at the new Lakeview Cemetery, which is now known as the old Lakeview Cemetery. The residents were given one summer to make arrangements and have the business completed. It was a daunting task. As many of the graves were over a hundred years old, the oldest being that of Hannah Lampton, buried in 1793. The total number of graves on record was 842, but only 253 of these would ever be moved to the new cemetery. Families simply could not afford the reinterment, and many graves had no family members to care for them at all. When excavation and reinterment of the bodies occurred, some corpses were shuffled around and some went missing altogether. Adding to the confusion is the fact that some remains were not recoverable and only some of the body parts and some of the coffins were moved to the new location. According to the superintendent of Lakeview Cemetery, there are 118 graves with no records of whose body they contain and as many as 72 others which may contain only body parts for which there are no records. He also stated that a number of the monuments were damaged or destroyed when they were moved to the new location. The limestone bricks of St. Peter's were moved to the new cemetery and used in one of the outbuildings. Other headstones were used by local quarrymen to build houses. The remains of St. Peter's, including the hardwood floorboards, were burned. The canal construction began and the entire grounds were flooded with a pondage area that was used for excess water flow. Today, the remains of headstones that were left behind can be seen when the pondage is drained by the Seaway Authority. At first, authorities had denied that a cemetery actually existed there, fearing that they might have to, in modern times, move the remaining bodies or preserve the land somehow. However, with evidences of pieces of headstones, grave markers, and even human remains, the authorities have finally said that yes, indeed, the cemetery was and is still there. There are no plans to move the remaining bodies or preserve the area. For several years, I attempted to find the location of the cemetery, and while I found evidence such as gravestones and grave markers, but the actual plot of land eluded me. I was convinced I was near the cemetery, but never entirely sure. I did, however, experience a very unsettling feeling when I was near the area. Gord Westwater, formerly of the Shadows Project, and Kevin Valancourt, formerly of Niagara Amateur Ghost Seekers, reviewed archives and maps to pinpoint the cemetery's precise location. And to date, the only paranormal group to conduct an investigation into the area was the Shadows Project. 
The members of the Shadows Project each experienced different activity at the old cemetery grounds, and with it they recorded several EVPs. Lakeview Cemetery is divided into two separate plots of land, the old and the new. Old Lakeview Cemetery, which had its first interment in 1886, holds the remains of 253 bodies from the cemetery formerly known as St. Peter's or the Old Burial Ground. The new Lakeview Cemetery, which was developed in 1962 to accommodate the growing population of Thorold and the surrounding communities, feels modern. But on it are the remains of the Bishop Fuller House, as well as a monument to Bishop Fuller himself. The old Lakeview Cemetery is darker and more historical. Some tombstones are so dated that all the inscriptions are worn off. Since the early 1940s, this cemetery has been known to locals as a haunted site, and children dared each other to walk through its shadows. Even today, visitors get an eerie feeling when walking the grounds, while paranormal enthusiasts have recorded EVPs and described strange activity occurring. I have investigated the cemetery several times, and each time I felt like I was being watched. On every occasion as I stood there, a feeling of urgency began to occupy my mind. An urgency to leave. I am always drawn to the back left corner of the grounds and often find myself at the same tombstones each time. Others, such as Stephen Willett, formerly of the Shadows Project, have also happened upon the same tombstones in the same locations. Here, on these grounds, are the final resting places of the founding fathers of Thorold and many prominent families from the region, including the Smiths and the Kiefers. So, do the Lakeview Cemetery and its stories of being haunted have a relationship with the activity at the Blue Ghost Tunnel? The Smith House. Just the short distance from the Blue Ghost Tunnel are the remains of what once was a family home belonging to James Smith, who in 1840 listed himself as a farmer and then later a capitalist. The only elements remaining of the house are a limestone foundation, a nearby small well, and a staircase that climbs to what was once a vegetable garden. Here, one can find the residue of broken housewares, originating from England and Scotland. There is little historical documentation about the house, but it was known to be abandoned by the early 1920s as farms had amalgamated into larger operations. I happened upon the foundation while hiking around the Blue Ghost Tunnel, believing that perhaps other structures or evidence of such could be found. On a separate hiking adventure, Gord Westwater, formerly of the Shadows Project, and Kevin Valancourt, formerly of Niagara Amateur Ghost Seekers, had found the same structure and conducted a few investigations in which Gord said he had evidence of it being haunted. Are the spirits who haunt this particular location responsible for the paranormal activity at the Blue Ghost Tunnel? The Mystery House Foundation In the general area of the Blue Ghost Tunnel, a larger house foundation was discovered by Gord Westwater and Kevin Valancourt. All that remains of this structure is a limestone foundation, and there is so far no documentation found to determine who owned this particular structure. It is of such large scale, and perhaps this was simply a farmhouse or even an outbuilding from the Smith property. The House on the Hill Above the Blue Ghost Tunnel's east entrance, near the edge of the quarry, 
stood a large three-story house. It is seen on only a few photographs of the Blue Ghost Tunnel as a blurry haze. During my investigations into the tunnel, I approached a psychic medium who drew an aerial view of the tunnel and placed a house upon a hill alongside a large barn. She indicated that the source of the paranormal activity of the tunnel was the house on the hill. In venturing up the hill and looking for a house, I found no evidence of its existence. Walker's Quarry is still operating and they have taken much of the hill in extending their operations. Officials at the quarry insist that a house was indeed on the property and was owned by one of the Walker brothers, most likely John Walker himself, but they could not provide any more details. They said the house was most likely torn down in the late 1960s when the quarry was expanded. In talking to many locals, I learned that they used to regard the abandoned house as a foreboding presence upon the hill. These same locals played as children around the wooded area surrounding the Blue Ghost Tunnel and often spoke of a haunting inside the walls of the dilapidated mansion. As kids, we used to call these two buildings on top of the hill the haunted house. Even in the 1960s, going over the skyway, you could see them, says Pendakowski. There was only the stone shell, no floor or roof. Several other residents of Thorold told me the house was said to be haunted by an angry old man who would try to capture children if they came close to his dwelling. The story proclaimed that this old man could travel as far as the Welling Canal and possibly into the Blue Ghost Tunnel itself. Could the source of the activity originate from this house? Or are these simply fables formulated by children to scare one another? And what of the psychic's assertions that this house on the hill, of which she had no prior knowledge or even awareness, was she picking up on something? Thank you for listening to Unsolved Mysteries of the World. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, or your other favorite podcast directory, and subscribe, rate, and review. We would really appreciate your support. If you haven't already, join us on Facebook to enhance this episode with photos, illustrations, and lively discussion. Look for our suggested links and do share this podcast with others. Perhaps you or someone you know will have a solution to this mystery. This podcast is created by Cold Rasta Studios and includes music and sound effects by John Savoy, Albert Ray, Gerardo Garcia Jr., Rana Szilard, Madia Cupelli, Alex Lisi, Martin Kahlberg, and Adrian von Ziegler.